continuing in Acts this morning. Chapter 6. Very important chapter in our understanding of the book of Acts. Uh, in God's intention for us to know. You know, as you look around at churches, you see the churches struggle. You know, I would like to be able to stand here this morning and tell you that we've never had any problems here. We've never had any conflict. Everyone's always done what they were supposed to do. And everyone here has the greatest heart for God that never gets, and nothing else ever gets in the way of it. And uh, and that sort of thing. But we understand this. We understand that we, there, there's not a purified church at this point because it's, it's full of people who, who have experienced salvation in Christ in realistic ways. But at the same time, we understand that there's still this darkness that lies in each one of us. The light is coming. The light's begun to reveal the darkness, but the darkness is still there sometimes lurking in the background. Because that is true. Wherever people gather, it has been said, there will be trouble. Let me read. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists uh, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelfth summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll, uh, we will appoint to this duty that we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and uh, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the free men, as it is called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel." We're going to stop there this week. Next week, we'll be doing chapter 7, which has to do with uh, Deacon Stephen uh, as well. 
Someone has said that wherever two or more people are gathered together, there will inevitably arise complaints. Sometimes those are legitimate. Very often they are legitimate. Sometimes not so much and sometimes not legitimate at all. But they all typically arise from a particular mindset, and that is, or a typical way of thinking, that is some sense of an unfairness that's that's taking place for one reason or another. In other words, certain people are being treated differently than other people are. That sort of thing. It should not surprise us that even in the midst of the probably the most powerful movement of the Holy Spirit in all of history, <laughs> that issues arise. Because the church is and was full of sinners. And wherever there's sinners, there's going to be problems. Factions began forming within the ranks of the church. Very often probably people that knew each other before they became believers began to, you know, gather together with one another and, you know, and that sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But one of the things we always have to be careful of, you know, what we want Springs Presbyterian Church to be is a loving, caring church, a church that loves and cares about its members, But there is something else that is equally important. And that is that we be a church that is very welcoming to people that come to visit. In other words, we want to have more family members. This is not a closed family. There's a sense maybe when it it might be a lot easier if we just said, you know what, we have the family we want right now and we just shut the door and let anybody else in. But we need to be reminded that this family that we are part of is not our family. It's Christ's family. We should always be willing and, and, and even wanting for the fellowship of Springs Presbyterian Church to grow. That more people would, would experience the kind of love of Christ that many of us have experienced in this congregation. There are people in this room that you're closer to than other people. There are people that you talk to every single morning or every single Sunday morning. And there are probably other people in this room that maybe you've never said one word to. That's human nature to be that way. We're comfortable with people that we've already found ourselves to be comfortable with. But just like any other organization, very often you're going to find that there are special interests groups in church bodies. Some people are more interested in one thing. Other people are interested in something else. And that's fine as long as it doesn't become a point of division. And sometimes these things do become points of division. 
Now, I wonder what people would say if you stop people out there in the world and ask them what their picture of the church of Jesus Christ is today in the world. Would, would they describe it as this, this well-connected group of people? Or would they have more of an idea that the church, the modern church today, is very much divided? I mean, after all, look at all the different denominations that we have. We have more liberal denominations. We have more conservative denominations. We have more and more independent churches that are not affiliated with any other part of the body of Christ. I would imagine the average person in the world out there doesn't see any connection in the church hardly at all. In other words, they see the church more as a bunch of splinter groups, not as a whole. And unfortunately, very often, it's because that is kind of the picture we paint for them. I mean, look at all the different denominations. Look at all the different independent churches and independent churches are growing leaps and bounds they don't want to have any affiliation with any denomination at all but there's a complaint that arises in the in this fledgling newly formed church and the complaint comes from the hellenistic jews in other words the jews whose primary language was greek against the other Jews, the ones who spoke Hebrew, that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We've, we've read how people were giving, you know, look what Barnabas did. He sold that land and took all the proceeds and gave it to the church. You know, to be used as a church saw it needed to be used, and that was to help people that needed help and that sort of thing. Just as we've said, the old saying, where two or more are gathered together, there will be problems. <laughs> you know, very often people expect the church to be perfect. And let me just say this, that in realistic ways, that we should be about as close to perfect as we, as we can be in this world. <laughs> Knowing that we're going to fall a long way short of it. But one of the things that was going on is the disciples, the apostles, were trying to deal with everything that came up. Now, I've been in the ministry long enough to know that there's always something going on. There's always something important going on. There's always something you should be doing. There's always someone you should be talking to. There's always something. Always. You never, ever get away from it. It is life-consuming. But it appears as though everyone expected the apostles themselves to deal with every problem that arose in the church. Whether it was a big deal or a little deal. We all know this. No one can do everything. But sometimes control freaks try to. And I want you to know something here. Notice something here, and that is the apostles were not control freaks. 
they were very willing to give a little bit up so that they could focus more clearly on the things that God had placed most particularly upon them. So they could concentrate on teaching. They could concentrate on evangelism. They could concentrate on all those other things without having to hear someone make a plea because so-and-so didn't get enough food this week. One of the things I want to make clear this morning is very obvious here. The apostles were not control freaks. They did not want to. They did not try to control absolutely everything. Let me, let me read to you what R.C. Sproul wrote about today's ministers. Today a minister is expected to be the CEO of a corporation. He is expected to do the administration and the work of development, to be an expert in counseling and pastoral care. As a result, we have raised up generations of pastors of all trades and masters of none. One of the reasons why they do not open the word of God for the congregation on Sunday morning is that they do not know how to. They have spent their time learning everything else but the scriptures. Heaven help us if that's true. I love this congregation. I can't imagine serving another congregation. And one of the reasons is you haven't expected me to do everything. We have always had people step up and do. This is a little church, but this is a doing church. It's, it's very rare that pastors have 28 years tenure at a particular church. You know what? I have never one time ever seriously anticipated leaving here. Not one time in 28 years. And one of the reasons is this, is you have allowed Lori and I to be Lori and I. Your expectations of us have been reasonable. At least most of the time. We, we don't feel like we're hired employees that are just here to do a job. We are part of the family here. We feel it. We know it. We know. We, you guys know that we love you. But we also know that you very desperately love us. That it is a huge burden to bear. It really is. But the nice thing is you don't have to do it. Listen to me, Mike. You don't have to do it yourself. And Barbara. You need help. You need to be willing to receive help. So what the apostles decide to do is to create another church office that becomes the office of deacon. 
that looks after the physical well-being of the ministry, the finances and food distribution and things like that. Why? To relieve the pastor from having to be involved in that kind of stuff. And I'm telling you, I know a lot of pastors. I know a lot of churches that encourage their pastor to do everything, but also know a lot of pastors themselves who think they're the only one who can do anything right. I'm delighted that we have other people here who teach. I don't want to do all the teaching. I don't think it would be good for you if I did all the teaching. I'm so thankful for deacons. I'm so thankful for the fact that we have never, ever in the history of this church struggled to get men to step forward and serve as deacons and elders. Never. And that doesn't say anything about me. That says something about you. Because being an officer is costly. It costs time. It costs effort. Sometimes you'll be involved in heart-wrenching things that you're the last thing in the world you want to have to deal with. But in their great wisdom... The apostles created this other office, and we know it had to be ordained by God. It was God working through them, imparting this wisdom to them. That you would have elders who oversee the spiritual aspects of the ministry and the deacons who would oversee the physical aspects of the ministry. Things like food distribution. Just notice here that the the apostles were not control freaks like a lot of pastors tend to be. They were willing to give up. They were wanting to give up. (laughs) They were happy to give up certain things. But they create this office of deacon. Now let me tell you something. I was a deacon before I became an elder. And a particular church I happened to be in, being a deacon was the most frustrating thing I ever did in my whole lifetime. Because it was, in fact, in a church where the pastor wanted to have absolute control of everything. And so we would constantly make financial decisions and things like that. There were good financial decisions then, and they were just still would be today and whatever, and they were, we were just, our legs got cut out from under us every time we tried to do anything. And we wound up just kind of reserving ourselves to the fact that we're just supposed to be the guys who lock the church up after everybody leaves on Sunday. When I came here, I determined that that was not going to be the experience of Deacons at Springs. The things you decide, you decide, and we abide by them. We don't overturn the rulings of the deacons. We let you do your thing, and you let us do our thing. And I don't know of anybody, I may be wrong, but I don't know of anybody that ever served here as a deacon that left here because they were frustrated. Because they weren't allowed to do what God had called them to do.
This decision pleased the gathering church. So they picked seven men. Now just remember at this point, realistically, the church has literally thousands of people in it. I would say at the very minimum, 10,000 people. <laughs> the church in Jerusalem. Six doesn't seem like a very, I mean, seven doesn't seem like a very high number to me. Uh, and what do they do? They prayed and they laid hands on them. In other words, they ordained them. This is an ordained office. Just as we ordained Bob and Butch just recently as deacons. I'm telling you, we need to get out of this mindset. Very often people look as elders as being the superiors and deacons as being the inferiors. You know, the only reason the elders have final say-so is this, is somebody has to. You can't have two bodies with neither one of them being able to finalize a particular thing when maybe there is disagreement about something. You have to have some means of bringing resolution. Otherwise, you're stymied and you're stuck and you can't go anywhere. So what I would say to you is it's only out of necessity that the, 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 the elders here have ultimate authority. Notice here that the word continued to increase. In other words, the apostles were continuing to expound and teach the things that they had learned from Jesus And as the word increased, the church increased. The presence, the understanding, the application and practice of God's word continually increased and the church was blessed because of it. I would imagine at this point all of the apostles were absolutely extraordinary teachers. One of those teachers that maybe in your whole lifetime you may have once or twice you where you think you could just sit there and just listen to them teach all the time. <laughs> and just remember their humble beginnings. And you know, who would have ever picked fishermen and other people like that to do what these guys are doing? No one. The exposition and application of the master's words move forward with power and conviction upon the masses even to the extent that a great number of priests did you read that? Did you hear that? A great number of priests became obedient to the faith. Conversion amongst the ranks of the priesthood who was the devoted enemy of Jesus and now the apostles, the one, the, the council they're continually brought before, the, the, the ones that, that put them in jail, the ones that had Jesus crucified, so on and so on. They're, they're giving up the ghost. 
Certainly those who had opposed and condemned Jesus to death were some of them were now his disciples. Can you imagine what their coming to Jesus experience was like? <laughs> Then you have Deacon Stephen. Full of grace and power. Doing great wonders and signs among the people. Does that sound like some kind of a lesser office to you? Not to me. We're not really told what precisely great wonders and signs were being done, but I think we can assume that at least some sorts of miracles were taking place at the hands of the deacons. You wonder why. Well, maybe it was this. It was to prevent people from thinking that the, deacon, the office of deacon was a lesser office than the office of elder. One thing's for certain, it's God's endorsement of this new office the apostles created, divine approval for the office of deacon. Stephen seems to be the most active of all of them. And because of the things that God is doing through him, he draws the attention of the unconverted Jews. Particularly those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen and the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and Cilicia and Asia. They begin to dispute with Stephen. But just like Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other seas, they couldn't gain a ground, just like they've tried with the apostles, can't gain ground. It's just the same thing with Stephen. They dispute with him, and they can't show him to be wrong in anything he's saying or doing. <laughs> in other words, just like Jesus and just like the apostles, Stephen was making his accusers look bad, and they didn't like it. I don't know about you, but I don't know too many people that like to be corrected, period. Even in private. <laughs> when someone comes to you and says, I got something I think I need you, I think you need to hear. But nobody likes the idea of being corrected publicly. It is humiliating, embarrassing demeaning Jesus had on numerous occasions verbally sliced and diced his accusers and they hated him all the more for it Stephen follows in his footsteps and they hate him as well I don't know too many people that take public humiliation very well. It's bad enough it's private. But in public, 
becomes public knowledge, common knowledge. So what happens when Jesus, or when uh, Stephen begins to speak, is he just makes a matter. <laughs> it's not his intention to do that. I don't think that that was his purpose. He's not speaking to them and saying the things that he's saying because he hates them or, you know, he's struggling with power over them, you know. And this, I don't think that's his all. He's just telling the truth, and they just don't like what the truth is. Especially when they take that truth and they apply it to themselves. It's ugly. And they don't like it. So what do they do? They do like they did with Jesus. They, as a last resort, they bring false witnesses against Stephen. He said things like, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. Do we have any record of Stephen ever saying anything about the law or the temple? No. And that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. False representation of what's going on here. Things that they know if they say is going to enrage the people that are hearing it even though it's not true. Now, to be truthful, Jesus actually did say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But we understand Jesus was not talking so much about the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. He was talking about himself. He was that temple. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, maybe someone in your lifetime has described you as having the face of an angel. I don't think anyone's ever said that about me. So what does that mean? It means it was obvious to people who were watching that something extraordinary was taking place here. A God thing was taking. Something that only could be a God thing. But with his accusers looking at him and seeing this brilliance in his countenance, it only enraged, enraged their anger more. To send blind people you betcha. And don't think that you're beyond it. Don't think that I'm beyond it. Our sin very often has a blinding effect on us. We don't see it. Other people see it maybe and we just flat don't. 
And at the same time, we see the sin in the lives of other people very clearly. God's presence with Stephen was manifest in his appearance. Anyone seeing what was going on could only logically come to the conclusion that it really was a God thing. But this is a measure of the sinfulness of the human heart. They hated him all the more because of it. And these were the men who were supposed to be the ones who knew and served the Lord first and foremost of all. Do you understand that one of the primary things that is driving this point is just simple jealousy? They will shortly kill him, and they will take great pleasure in doing so. They won't have the Romans do it. They will do it by their very own hands this time. No one in this room will likely, literally, give his or her life for Jesus in this manner. We live in a country that is by far the greatest country in the world for a lot of reasons. And one of those is we have always been guaranteed our right to practice our religion freely. I don't consider myself to be a prophet, and I hope you don't either. But sometimes common sense just tells us particular things, and we all, everyone in this room ought to understand something, and that is this, is, is this nation right now is heading in the wrong direction? And if the, if the course doesn't change, if we don't get back on track, and that is the track that our founding fathers put us on because they were Christians, not just because they were religious people, but because they were Christian religious people. We will begin to see our rights erode away. And one of the first ones is going to be our freedom of speech. Now certain things are being labeled as hate speech. And there is hate speech going on out there. And we need to be not part of it. But today, hate speech is just simply anything that certain people don't like to hear people say. <laughs> Period. If it rubs them the wrong way, then it's hate, hate speech. Not whether it's true or if it's given with a rightful heart or anything like that. It's just something they don't like. They don't agree with. They hate it. They abhor it. And they would stone you to death if they could, probably, to shut you up. But quite likely, none of us in this room will literally die in the manner that Stephen does. 
not likely that we will be executed for our faith in the practice of it. But at the same time, it's not a stretch for you and I to conclude this. And that is that during this last hour, we've had a brother or a sister or many brothers and many sisters in this world that who in fact have given their life for Christ. Sometimes I think there should be a law that says everyone, when you turn 21, has to go to some undeveloped country for six months and live there. Then you can come home and you can gripe if you want to. Let's always be mindful that God has been very good to us. In a lot of ways, and one of those is the guaranteed practice of our religion. But don't forget about those in the world who don't have the rights and privileges that we do. Brothers and sisters will die today. We need to pray for them. We also need to pray for wives and husbands and children and grandchildren and brothers and sisters. They're left behind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, first of all, for your goodness to us. Forgive us, Lord, that we gripe and we complain. Forgive us, Lord, sometimes when we think that we have it all that bad. Forgive us, Lord, when we think life here is just miserable. Remind us, Lord, of the goodness of life, the quality of life, the standard of living that we've all experienced in our lifetime. But even more than that, Lord, we thank you that we live in a land where we can talk about the Jesus with anybody we want to, anytime we want to. We thank you, Father, for that freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And we know, Lord, that you're the one that granted those to us, not those founding fathers. You did it. And, Lord, pray that we would not take it for granted and pray, Lord, that we would, in fact, take advantage of it. It's funny, Lord, we have maybe the greatest freedom in our land to evangelize more so than anyone else ever has. And yet, Father, very often we find ourselves hesitant to do it. 
It scares us. We're afraid of it. We're afraid of what other people might think. We're afraid how they might react to what we have to say to them. We're afraid we won't know what to say to them. But Father, we pray that you indeed would overcome those ridiculous fears that we have. And that you would speak forth kindly and gently but very powerfully in each one of our lives in what we say and in what we do that we truly would be your emissaries your ambassadors and that we would trust even the very most precious things including our life absolutely and completely to you. But we pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters today whose hearts will be crushed because of death. Not so much those who will die, Lord, but those that they will leave behind. Hear our prayers, O oh, great one, and act. In Jesus we pray.